I'm Dr. Robert Groves, your host for the Groves Connection podcast. The Groves Connection brings you intimate conversations with pundits, providers, patients, leaders, and laypeople, all to help us understand a contradiction. How can our healthcare system be both magnificent and yet so deeply flawed? We're going inside healthcare to talk candidly with those who know. What they have to say may delight, surprise, frustrate, or at times even anger you. But I invite you to get curious and listen to the truth about healthcare and those who want to fix it. Maybe the answers have been there all along. We just need to make the connection. In this episode, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Tom Grote, CEO of Banner Aetna, a joint venture between Banner Health, a $10 billion integrated delivery system based in Phoenix, Arizona, and the major health insurer Aetna, now a CVS company. Tom was the leader tagged with transforming the payer relationships for Aetna in Arizona. This alone is a huge testament to Tom's ability to foster collaboration and positive change across the healthcare landscape. Prior to taking on this role, Tom has proven his ability to lead in roles that began as an employee benefits rep over 30 years ago. He continued to acquire increasing levels of responsibility and scope with Aetna, with roles including president of Aetna's capital market in Maryland, Washington, D.C., and Virginia, as well as market president in Arizona and New Mexico with additional oversight responsibilities for operations in California, Alaska, Oregon, Washington State, Colorado, Nevada, and Utah. When Aetna envisioned collaboration beyond the usual accountable care organization and began thinking about really transforming the way payers and delivery systems interact by aligning incentives, for example, to share risk by moving traditional insurance functions like prior authorization, utilization management, and care management over to the system actually delivering the care, well, Tom was the go-to guy. He has been instrumental in developing joint venture relationships and strategy in the Virginia, D.C., Maryland market, the California market, and of course, most recently, in Arizona with Banner Health. Though an impressive resume, the story is much deeper than that from my perspective. Full disclosure, Tom also happens to be my boss. Imagine for a moment that you are at the crest of a successful career, very comfortable in your role, secure and productive. And then you decide to try something new, to be uncomfortable once again, unsure, striking out into unknown territory. Who would you want to take that journey with you? What kind of leader would you want to help you through that? I would submit that you'd want someone who understands the work to be done very clearly, but who also understands your talents and skill, who is patient and kind and yet inspires you to want to do more and be better each day. Someone who listens yet can push back respectfully and in doing so, drive better decisions, deeper learning, and closer connections for your entire team. When I stepped into the world of healthcare payers, even after a long career in healthcare delivery, including decades of direct patient care, work in innovation, population health, digital transformation, and senior leadership, I was truly humbled by the complexity of the payer world. New challenges, new ways of thinking, even new language. I was so fortunate to have just the type of leader, friend, and mentor that I just described. So without further delay, please enjoy my time and yours with Tom. Are you ready to connect? Tom, 
Tom Grote. Welcome to the Groves Connection. Thanks, Robert. Glad to be joining you. You've had some very distinguished guests so far, and I'm pleased to be part of this. Yeah, and we got another one today. So, uh, Tom, I, I think in fairness to our audience, I ought to point out that you're my boss. And so if I'm a little more delicate in my questioning <laughs> today, everyone will understand why. But I may not be. We'll see what happens, and, and we'll see if I still have a job after the podcast. I start all of these out in kind of the same way, and it's because I like to understand a little bit about the person before we get into a lot of details on your thoughts on what you do and, and how you do it. So let's start there. Let's start back in grade school. You know, where'd you go to school? How'd you grow up? And what were you thinking you might do when you were that young and tender age? Well, I was actually born in Buffalo, New York, and uh, my childhood was severely impacted when I was eight years old and my father passed away. Turns out to be, you know, an incredible story because at the time, my mom was pregnant with twins, our oh my fifth and sixth children. Oh. And it was so close to delivering those that she didn't even go to the funeral because it would have been too much pressure given the state that she was in. So basically, all six of us grew up the majority of our, our childhood without a father. Wow. And my mom, you know, is just, just an absolutely incredible woman. She ended up raising all six of her by herself. She never remarried. She focused in on really trying to enhance the lives of her six children. You know, she's 86 now, and to this day, we remain her definite pride and joy. Oh, but, I'm sure. Uh, you know, it's, it's fascinating to me that we've known each other for three or four years, and I never knew that about you. Yeah. I mean, that's that's news to me. And I, I do you remember what it was like when that happened? I mean, do you have imprints from that time? You know, it's funny because you think about when my own son was eight years old, and, you know, I spent so much time with him. I'm like, if I died tomorrow, he'd remember me to the nth degree. And that wasn't the case. You know, mm. I have uh, very fleeting memories of my dad. I do remember the day he died. I was coming back from a swimming lesson and, you know, it was a bunch of ambulances in the yard. And, and you know, I remember that day very distinctly. But yeah. the other memories are a bit fleeting for me. Um, yeah. Definitely, you know, had an impact on all of us. And I think ultimately, you know, made each of the kids a little more independent Yeah, because my mom, had to do the job of both a, a mom and a father. And, you know, there was things we had to take on to ourselves and just be responsible for. You know, I think it made all of us a little bit more independent as we grew up. Yeah. You know, I think it's evidence and, you know, when they, everybody went off to college, nobody stayed in state. They all yeah. went um, to school they wanted to go to, wherever it was, because of that feeling that they could, you know, handle things on their own. Is your mom still in, in New York then? No, no, no. After um, my dad died, we moved over to Connecticut to be closer to her parents, so we had some support gotcha. system there. And now she lives in Bowdoin, Maine, near my uh, my sister, one of the twins. That's where fiercely independent people go, <laughs> I understand. Absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. How old were you when you moved to Connecticut? Were was it, it was that year? That year, that okay. year, later that year when okay. I was eight years old. And so yeah. we grew up in this beautiful town outside of Hartford. My mom provided a, a very, very nice lifestyle for us. It helped that my father was in the insurance business. So we had a very good life insurance policy. And uh, oh, wow. so that um, yeah. enabled yeah. us to, to live a comfortable life, you know, growing up in a beautiful community, you know, of Simsbury, Connecticut. Yeah, so. excellent. That's, that's, if there's any uh, silver lining, it's that he was an insurance executive right, and so exactly. knew what to prepare for. So school, high school, what were you thinking then? What was your yeah, life like? Um, went to Simsbury High School, the public school there in town. I had a great experience there. I played three sports. I was a lacrosse, soccer, and, and hockey player. I went to look for schools. Originally, I was I was aligned to go to Holy Cross um, yeah. College in Massachusetts, which was relatively close to where we lived and actually where my dad went. But um, I was waitlisted at Notre Dame and the last minute they let me in. And it was a decision that, you know, at that point I, I kind of looked ahead and said, 25 years from now, if I went to Holy Cross but didn't go to Notre Dame, I'd always question it. And I said, if I go to Notre Dame, I'm never going to have that question. Yeah. And so it was a, you know, tremendous experience played lacrosse there, uh, captain of the team and great friends there. It's a great institution to be aligned with for your business and personal career. And so it's, uh, so you know. So sports was a, a big part of your early life. Is that continued to this day? Or are you still? Uh... Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I ended up playing hockey and lacrosse uh, basically into my 50s. And, oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah. 
And right now I've gone to um, less physically demanding sports. And so spend most of my time on the tennis courts or on the golf course. And it's interesting so, you describe tennis as less demanding. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe less physically Less brutal. physical than, than <laughs> yeah. hockey and lacrosse. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so you're in college at Notre Dame. Did you have an idea of what you wanted to do? Or? I really didn't. I really didn't. I uh, was a finance major there. I didn't really have a career lined up when I was in school. And so after I finished school, I went back to Connecticut to look for a job. And at that point, uh, Connecticut was the insurance capital of the world. Yep. And so my options were heavily aligned with insurance or insurance. And, yeah, it uh, was your dad's <laughs> business. You're in Hartford. Right. For, yeah. So that it, it makes sense. So do you think it would have been different if you'd lived somewhere else? Or I guess what I'm getting at is what were you thinking in terms of a career? Were you always sort of, I'm going to join a company and advance in that company and, and become something there? Was that always sort of the... Yeah, absolutely. I think it um, was to find something that I enjoy doing and, um, you know, st stick with that industry. And I looked at a, a number of different industries, banking and others out of college. But like I said, going back to Connecticut, it, it did limit um, what options you had. Yeah, yeah. And my dad was in insurance, so I was familiar with it. You know, he had made a good living in it. So I wasn't opposed to it per yeah, se. Yeah. And so, you know, from a lot of respects, that it did make sense. To, yeah, it's in to the neighborhood it. and yeah. in your blood. Yes, so, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So, so tell us about that first job. How did that come about? What did you think about it? You know, what was that experience like for you? Your first real job, I guess. Yeah, so I... Um, Ended up taking a job with Aetna and joined the um, 1987 group school, which was a very, very unique training program. Students from all over the country came to Hartford, Connecticut for a 13-week training program. We wow. learned all about um, health insurance, you know, dental insurance, life insurance, as well as the time 401k. After we finished the training program, we were going to be assigned to a location across the country, which was not predetermined. So you could have been sent anywhere. And at that time, Aetna had a lot of remote offices that weren't all that attractive to a 21-year-old. So yeah, it was bet. a pretty risky endeavor to, 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 <laughs> to go through that program. Yeah. So so you just reminded me of something. I remember an, an ad, an old ad about... I think it was Aetna, I'm glad I met you or something, but but are they still in the life insurance business today? Do they still do 401ks or is it, uh, all, most of us recognize that as a health insurance. Right, right. At the time they did, they did life insurance and, and um, they did um, health insurance and property and casualty. So they sold off their property and casualty business over the years. They, not that long ago, sold off their life insurance business. Gotcha. So, okay. so it's more focused right now on health and dental um, yeah, business yeah. and some ancillary lines. So tell us where you ended up. Yeah, so out of group school, I asked for a big city on the East Coast. I was given an assignment in Akron, Ohio. <laughs> <laughs> That's hardly what you had in mind, I'm guessing. Nothing no. against Akron, folks, but, I, you know, big city on the East Coast, it is not. Exactly right. Exactly right. You know, at the time, I, I told my girlfriend what we got assigned, who's now my current wife, and I said, we got Akron, Ohio, and she's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> that is not a big city on the East Coast. So it, it turned out to be a, a tremendous assignment. I got it in put in an office with a great manager, a guy named Jim Bernard, a, a, a three younger reps, all in their late 20s, early 30s. Yeah. Great training ground for me to learn from all of them, pick their brains, and they brought me in with open arms. And so, yeah, so on the yeah. long run, it turned out really well. But, you know, that first assignment was a bit uh, shocking, to say yeah. the least. Did, did that stress the relationship? A little bit, a yeah. little bit. And uh, not long after we got assigned to Akron, they consolidated with the Cleveland office, we ended up, um, you know, relocating to Cleveland area, um, which has its own historical challenges from yes. a reputation perspective. Yes. And my wife got a, um, a Cleveland Indians hat and she went to a, uh, a Boston <laughs> Red Sox game. And in Boston, you know, people were uh -oh. yelling at her about the mistake on the lake. And she's like, <laughs> what have we done? Where are we exactly going? But all in all, it was a tremendous experience. 
You know, we, we loved Cleveland. Yeah, yeah, I've heard that. You know, people that have actually lived there say, yeah, reputationally, but that's fine because it keeps it keeps the way it, we like it. Exactly yeah. right. It's, you know, it's an affordable city with really down-to-earth people. It's got all the sports teams and all that. And for us, you know, it was a, it turned out to be a really great place to, to raise our kids. So, so how long had you and your girlfriend at the time, right? How long had you known each other before this happened? Yeah, we were high school sweethearts. Oh, my goodness. So, oh. yeah. So we uh, we started dating right before junior year in high school. And, oh, my gosh. Uh, so that would have been about... In 1979 or 80. And, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, That so. is such a cool story. I, what life took away from you very early, it sounds like it, it gave back to you later on. In yeah. terms of that ideal story of high school sweetheart, following in dad's footsteps, you know, something you really wanted to do. That's amazing. And so I, I'm, I'm guessing it didn't stress it nearly as much as had you just met uh, or something right, like exactly, that. Right, exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah, we were pretty entrenched. Well, that's so. a very cool story. So you also mentioned something else that comes up over and over again, and that's mentors. Meeting that person in your first job or your first real job, or, you know, sometimes it's not the first one, but the second one, meeting that person that really, whether or not they know it, take you under their wing and and you get to learn so much from that individual. Were there other mentors along the way that you, you think about in that way? Absolutely. And it's, you know, part of the reason why I lasted so long at Atna is because I, I work with great people and I work with really bright people and each of which, you know, shared tidbits of, of how to better manage people, how to understand the business better, how to learn, yeah. you know, what our industry is all about. And so, you know, um, starting with Jim Bernard as my first manager and, and uh, I went to Indy for a short period of time and I worked under a guy named Wes Chalker. You know, he taught me a, a, a few things that I remember to this day because I was a relatively young rep still and, and, share, share those with us. And, and we, of- we'd go in and, and um, have an issue and ask him to solve it for us. And he'd be like, no, I need you guys to go back and I need you to think about two or three options and come back and share those with me and give me your recommendation. And so it's a it's an incredibly clever way to, to help people understand how to solve their own problems. Because yeah. if you just walk right in and he tells you what to do every time, do you really learn it? Yeah, you not, don't. Not as well yeah. as if you actually have to learn to go through that process. And it's it's a discipline I, I have tried to continue and, and you know, my management um, opportunities. Sometimes it gets away from you because you're just, it's easier to just give the answer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, it's that kind of lesson that, that you, you know think about. And that was 30 years ago. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, I, that's come up so many times in, in these discussions that I've been having with leaders in healthcare is that mentor is usually that kind of guy that's not going to give you the answer but rather is going to encourage, and that takes a lot of patience. You do it now yourself. Yeah. And so, you know, you got to let people make mistakes. You got to let them come back with stuff that doesn't make any sense, you know, <laughs> to shape somebody that way is, is time consuming and requires a lot of the mental. Exactly. And I had other, other great mentors, yeah. Tom Skirfield back in Ohio, when I went back to Ohio for a while, just incredibly bright, you know, student of the business and, and really competitive. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah give you yeah, that, that drive and, yeah. you know, <laughs> And just you got to succeed. You got to get it done. You got to make it happen. And and later, you know, other people, I mean, there's too many to to name, but um, somebody like Bridget Nettesheim, who's been a great advisor as as it pertains to value-based care and and relationships with providers and and seeing her style and feeding off of that. And, you know, a lot of the relationships that that I've, you know, worked through. Yeah. So so were you anywhere else other than Edna at any point? Well, you are now, essentially. I am now, but I'm... I'm at a, a company that's owned half by Aetna, yeah, so, yeah. so really since 1987. So wow. it's, uh, yeah, yeah it's, it's been an incredible run. But as I said before, it's, it's really been, you know, a situation where I felt like the company always treated me really fairly. Yeah. And I worked with great people, and I always felt like if I did my job and I did it well— 
that had the opportunity to continue to climb the, the corporate ladder and get to that next opportunity. And I, I saw a lot of people over the years leave the company due to changes directions, due to mergers that they didn't like, come back at some point because the grass <laughs> just always isn't greener. Yeah, and uh, yeah. so that was always my belief and philosophy. And I felt comfortable, you know, here. And, you know, the people that I've worked with over the years and leadership that I've been under, you know, has been fantastic. Yeah. Walk us through that uh, that climb. You know, what did that look like? How long were you in your first role? What were you doing and what things did you learn? You know, I, I'd love to hear you walk us through that path. Yeah, I started off um, doing what would in essence be small group sales. Okay. And so, you know, working with brokers, selling groups that you know, maybe were up to 50 employees. That was my first assignments. You know, it was a, a, a great learning experience. I didn't always get the best brokers assignments because I was the new guy. So yeah. you had to really work it and try to develop relationships with firms that, that Aetna didn't historically have a relationship right. from. So yeah. there was usually some inherent challenges from previous experiences, other things that you had to learn to overcome. But from a training ground, it, it's a, a really beneficial environment to work in. And yeah. so I did that um, for a few years and then worked up to a little larger groups. And then, as I mentioned, I, I transferred out to Indianapolis um, to take on the large group sales role. Is that the way it usually works? Is newbies who started in small and then you, you just... That's the way it was working back then. That was a okay. pretty common approach. Yeah, and yeah. now sometimes people are assigned into small group, into large group, international accounts. So okay. it's a little bit different now, but that's how we worked it back in the day. Gotcha. Okay. So how long did you stay in a sales role? Oh, for a number of years, because I went to Indianapolis, did large group sales for just a year and a half or so there, because we sold a couple big groups. And then I looked around the state of Indiana and realized that there weren't a ton of large groups and yeah. said, maybe it makes sense to go back to the Cleveland market. So I went back to Cleveland, sold in large group business there for, for a couple more years. And then I became the national account sales rep for the Ohio, Kentucky market. So then you're working on the jumbo accounts, you know, which was a, a tremendous experience, you know, working with, you know, really large groups um, like yeah, BF Goodrich yeah. and others. And so, so how old are you when you make that jump? Uh, early thirties. Oh, wow. Early thirties. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's so. pretty early on in the career then that you did that. Talk to me a little bit about differences between selling the small groups versus jumbo accounts. I mean, and everything in between, it's a continuum, I'm guessing. Yeah, it's always about relationships, but your activity is very different. Uh, you know, if, you, if you're in small group, you are worried about the next month's sale and you have tons of activity and a lot of things to keep track of and, and a lot of volume that goes through the process. As you go up uh, the scale to larger and larger, larger groups, you get fewer opportunities, larger sales cycles, longer yeah. sales cycles, you get to national accounts, and then your numbers go down pretty significantly. And so, you know, you really have to be ultra focused on those opportunities to, to close them because you only get so many at-bats and the sales process is, is, is you know, very long. It, it can be up to a year, 18 yeah. months to sell a case. So, so the opportunity for big celebrations and big disappointments yes. if it doesn't go well. Exactly, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And after that, I um, ended up running this national account department for Ohio and Kentucky. And um, that was a great job. I, I really enjoyed it. We yeah. had some really high profile customers in Ohio and it was basically running my own business. So I had to worry about driving up additional revenue, growing the membership, retaining our customers and finding new ways to grow the customers. And we were responsible for the profit and loss of that business. Yeah. And so it was a great experience. And uh, I did that for nine years. Like I said, I really enjoyed that job, but I also looked at where I was, and I was basically at one of the top jobs in Ohio. Right. Couldn't see myself doing this for that much longer because after nine years, you need a new challenge, a new opportunity. Right, right. Uh, drove me to um, look at an opportunity over in, in the Maryland, D.C., Virginia market as okay. a, a general manager for our middle market business. Gotcha. Okay. And that, that I'm sure, was equally challenging, gave you a whole new set of uh, lessons learned. and Absolutely. 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 And, 
And, and that was, you know, the profit loss responsibility for that book, trying to figure out what products to bring to market, how we can increase distribution, how can we, you know, drive growth in the business. So de- definitely a little bit different thing in a brand new market, which, you know, takes a little bit of time to So this to is learn. a new market for Aetna, is that what? A new market for me. For, for you, me. okay. So Maryland, and, D.C., Virginia. Describe for listeners what a middle market, what size are we talking about there? Yeah, middle market would be groups that have over 100 employees up to three or five thousand. Gotcha. Okay. So you've got a lot more accounts to to keep up with in that situation. But you also have, let's call it more distributed income, if you will, for the business that you're running. Exactly. Okay. Okay. The the next step in the journey? Um, I had a couple different roles where I was the the market president for the, the D.C., Virginia, Maryland marketplace. And I was also the head of sales for the Mid-Atlantic region at the same time. Uh-huh. And then ultimately settled in as, as the, the, the market president for Maryland, D.C., Virginia. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like you moved a lot during those first few. Well, I guess you spent nine years uh, in Cleveland. Well, Cleveland was a, a was a return yeah, to. Yeah, so Cleveland was a return to. So, so in total, 15 years in Cleveland. 18 months in Indianapolis, gotcha. and then okay. we ended up spending 12 years in Maryland, D.C., Virginia area. So, gotcha. so, so pretty long stints yes. at, at yep. each of these stops, except for Indiana. Except for Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> okay, again, nothing against it's Indiana, Indiana, folks. It's just uh, it's what Tom was looking for that we're, we're talking about here. So I know you have children. Where did they come in uh, on that ride? So our oldest was actually uh, born in Indianapolis, so she <laughs> was a Hoosier. She's a Hoosier, so... Uh, so Amanda's the oldest, and she was born there. And the other two were born in uh, in Cleveland area in gotcha. a town called Brexville. And okay. like I said, a, a phenomenal place to raise the kids. It was, yeah, yeah. you know, it was really great. It was it was pretty traumatic when we ended up um, deciding to move to um, Maryland. Um, yeah, to say yeah the I'm least. sure it was. Now, now, how old were the kids then? The two girls were in middle school, and Ooh, then, yeah, that's yeah, a tough, tough time. Yeah, yeah. Tough time, and. and and Jack was in third or fourth grade. It was so bad that I had to promise them a dog uh, <laughs> to try to get them on board with the move. So, so that dog we still have to this day. So oh Casey's still kicking it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, she's about turned seventeen years old. Oh and my she's goodness! She's still around. Wow. So, yeah, yeah. What so, kind of dog? A uh, golden doodle. One. Of, she was one of the first Perfect. golden doodles because that yeah. was in the beginning of the whole. She's like golden an OG doodle phase. Golden doodle. Yes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. So. So. So uh, you're in Maryland, D.C. area now. What comes next? So we were in Maryland, D.C., Virginia, um, had an opportunity to, to work on a, a couple of, of ACOs. So hmm. so, so this is um, your first introduction to an ACO? This is my first introduction to ACO. This was early ACO territory? Yeah, this, was, this was when they started the ACOs. And when the first ACO we actually did was with Carillion Clinic in Roanoke, Virginia. Yeah. And um, so they had a vision... You know, we had an interest in, in partnering with them, and and a lot of it was driven by the fact that, um, you know, in, in my role as the market president, we had responsibilities for both the, the sales and service, but also also the network aspect of our business, and and I was just getting incredibly frustrated with the whole negotiation process between the health systems and the insurance companies, and and you know, adversarial historically incredibly yeah, adversarial yeah. and difficult negotiations and you know we just beat each other up for 6 months and yeah. you know end up with a deal that neither party liked and you walked away <laughs> feeling bad about the whole relationship and it's like god this in the long run this can't be the best way to do business yeah, and yeah. uh so, so this opportunity to, to, to work with Carillion and um, set up an ACO um, was really attractive to say, let's try a different way. Let's yeah. try to work together and see if we can come up with, with a better mousetrap and something that, that's more collaborative and we'll work together and not fight each other all the time. So we see some foreshadowing here of, yeah. of uh, other roles that you've occupied along the way, including this one. Yes. Um, you probably are in a better position than most to give us a, an historical perspective on health insurance and 
and how it felt at the time. I mean, and from my own experience in the practice of medicine, I didn't question when I first got out, you know, how things are done. You know, it, it, I was too young and not knowledgeable enough about things to be able to do that. I, I did what my colleagues did to a certain extent. I mean, I push on that a little bit, but is that how you experienced it when you first started with Aetna? And, you know, how, how did you think about the evolution of health insurance over this career? You know, it was, it was very much straightforward fee-for-service for, for yeah. a number of years. Yeah. I think the, the, the first biggest innovation that we saw was in the consumer-directed space. You know, the challenges with that is the transparency wasn't great. And yeah. so one of the concept was great. Yeah. You know, the transparency and the ability to really shop wasn't as available as necessary to make that as effective of a mechanism as it could be. Um, but those are still in place today. Yep. Maybe 30% of our membership is currently in a high deductible plan. And then, you know, the, the value-based care process. So is right. there... Is is there a better way to incentivize the doctors, incentivize the health systems to pay more attention to the quality and efficiency of, of the care they're delivering? And I've, I've always wanted to ask you this question because from the delivery side, when I was you know actively practicing and then in administrative roles on the delivery side of the equation, in other words, doctors, hospitals, that whole group of folks, it felt to me like we were going through the motions of an ACO, but we were often just so blind to what was happening. I mean, as, as a delivery system, we'd make, or as a physician even, we'd make these deals and say, yeah, we can hit this metric and that metric and the other metric. And often we would have no clue of whether that was really possible because we weren't that good at measuring our outcomes. Did it feel like that from the insurance side? Did you know the delivery system was thinking that? I, I, yeah, I, I, there's definitely some of that for sure. I, I think in concept, it all made sense to us, but there were, there were blind spots, I think, on both sides. And, and a big part of that was really good data sharing. You know, yeah, really yeah. good information sharing about who the members are that you're accountable for and what they have done, what they haven't had done. Yeah. And I think and we're still working was, on that today. And we're still yeah. working on that today. But it was a really big blind spot yeah. back in the day. And, yeah. and there was, you know, capitated arrangements that that brought down some delivery systems and, and so forth because, you know, they just weren't in a position to, to properly manage the process. So I think the concept had the right intent. I don't think the infrastructure was necessarily there to deliver upon it successfully. So, so what's different today that has created the opportunity for us to do a better job of partnering between uh, delivery and and uh, payers. There's definitely been some advances in ability to share data, e even from the support of you know the health insurance information exchanges, sharing across carriers and getting information into the providers. But I think there's also um, a number of enhancements that have been done about consolidating reporting, taking information in from the carriers, taking information in from the medical records, and combining those together to give a more comprehensive view of what the member's right. view is, and then utilizing different tools to get that information out to the independent providers that are not necessarily part of a big health system. So there definitely have been a number of advancements in the last couple of years that can help to facilitate that data. Is it perfect today? No, but it is definitely, from my perspective, heading in the right direction. Got it, got it. So, so and by the way, I would agree with all of that. I, you know, I know that we still have lots of work to do. You know, it's kind of like that old story of uh, when, when somebody's building a house and when they're laying the foundation, you don't see much. And then all of a sudden, when, when the foundation is finished, the house can rise pretty quickly. And I'm, I'm waiting for that house to rise uh, at, at this point. But what I want to go back to is your notion of how it could work better. How did that influence your career choices? What opportunities came up in the Virginia, Maryland, D.C. market? What, what happened next? And how did your view of, uh, of healthcare influence your choices? Yeah, so I, I had the very fortunate opportunity to be on the development team of Aetna's first joint venture with Inova Health System right. in Northern Virginia, which is the largest health system in Northern Virginia, a very prominent system that was looking to partner with another entity to bring insurance products to the market. And uh, so that was an incredibly exciting opportunity because it fell in line with that collaboration with 
the providers that I was talking about before, think about it. If we can partner with the biggest health system in the market and they can give us some preferred rates and we collaborate together, we can build something truly special that yeah. bring a, a new solution that's you know, more affordable and um, more efficient in the yeah, way we yeah. deliver healthcare. And, and, and that's not easy to do. There's so much inertia uh, involved in both the delivery side and the payer side that it can be a real challenge to, to move that ship. Uh, and it takes a little bit of courage to say, oh, yeah, let, let, let me fix that for you. So Yeah, it, it definitely does. And it, and it does take a good amount of trust. Yes. You know, you really have to believe in each other that, that you are committed to this concept and you will support it. That was a big thing that um, really had to be established between, you know, Nova and Aetna and uh, feeling that, yeah, we're, we're going to be in this together and we're going we're gonna to find a way to make it work. Because that is fundamentally the, the, the first step that you need to get to to really form this kind of partnership. Yeah, yeah. So that makes sense to me. So you're in Virginia, so it makes sense that you already know know that market, you kind of know what's going on there. And so it makes sense that that would be the, the first place that, uh, that you, how did, how did that opportunity come up? I mean, did, were you, were you chosen? Did you choose it? A little of both? Well, I was, I was the market president at the time. And since that system was within my territory and, um, I had a, keen interest in this. You know, I, I just volunteered to be part of the process. And so what did you learn in that initial process that has informed uh, your your actions today it really does take a a, a dual interest and in, and in to, to make something get launched at that level it's not an easy process and, and in many cases this is the first foray into this for yeah. a health system you know you really have to look at you know the gives and takes for both organizations and understand wh- where each one's coming from to build something that's sustainable because it has to be pretty well aligned or, or it won't be sustainable. Yeah. We also learned that, you know, when you set this one up, you become enemy number one of a lot of players in the market. Um, your competitors. Yes. yes. Um, on, on the insurance the side. And delivery side. And the delivery side. Yeah. And especially on the delivery side. And so, you know, there's risk associated with that because mm-hmm. they're going to challenge you and they're going to look for higher reimbursements and they're going to do anything they can for your entity not to be successful. So that's something that you walked away with that you don't necessarily appreciate going in on, yeah. you know, the implications of that. Yeah. So based on what I've heard about your career and what I know about you, you didn't have to do that, probably. I mean, you could have gone a more traditional route if you had wanted to. What is it about you that made you willing to take that kind of risk with your career, essentially? Yeah, I think it's the opportunity to make a difference. You know, it's everything you do, it's it's more satisfying if you have a purpose. Yeah, And, and you absolutely. know, I, I felt like this was an opportunity to, you know, take our organization to the next level and um, really learn about what the opportunity is about real true provider partnerships. What can we make of this? And can we do something that's completely different? And like you said, there's risk associated with it. But I felt that especially partnering with with an organization as, as highly esteemed as ANOVA, you know, yeah. it's going to be hard for us to lose as long as we do this the right way. Got and it. So, okay. so I felt it was a calculated risk, but gotcha. one well worth taking and the, and the goal of trying to, you know, move healthcare to the next stage. Yeah, yeah. So how'd you wind up in Phoenix, Arizona? After Inova was up and running for a couple of years, I had oversight over that relationship and, and where it stood in our marketplace. The decision was made to have it be separate from the local market and gotcha. um, sort of run independently so it could be more autonomous and more daring and how it approached the market. Mm. Since I felt that that was the most intriguing and interesting in my market, I wasn't all that anxious to stay and not be involved in that relationship. And so I started seeking out potential other opportunities. um, So so essentially what you're telling me is that there would have been sort of a parting of the ways with the ACO 
gaining its independence, for lack of a better term, and the market, which which you were in charge of, right. continuing to function like a, quote, normal health insurance market. Right, but doing it outside of Northern Virginia, doing everything. But, Interesting. And, and to me, you know, Innovation yeah. Health, that's, that's what we called it, uh-huh. was the most intriguing product we had in the market. And not having that at, you know— within my arsenal just didn't seem all that attractive to me. And so it goes back to meaning and, and also a challenge. I mean, I, you know, uh, your, your history with sports, you're a little competitive, you like a challenge. And, and did that, you know, kind of... Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. of course it did. <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> did, uh, how did the opportunity for other ACOs actually come up? Was that a decision that was made at corporate or was that something that you helped guide or, or, and how do you decide where to go next? I mean, yeah, the timing happened to work out really well where the opportunity, um, for the Arizona market head, um, became available, um, the market president position at the time, Aetna was in negotiations with Banner Mm. to do a similar joint venture. Okay. Okay. And they were a couple months into those discussions. And to me, this was the ultimate opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. Arizona was across the country and, um, (laughs) not a big city on the East coast, (laughs) not a big city on the East coast. And I'd never lived farther West than Indiana. Um, it was an incredibly intriguing opportunity because I heard so many good things about Banner and the current ACO relationship and, you know, the opportunity to try to build another joint venture with Banner was incredibly attractive to me to come out to this market. So initially I came out as the, the market president and the West region head as well. Spent better part of the first year working on the development of the joint venture. And at the same time, we had started discussions with Sutter up in Northern California. Gotcha. And so uh-huh. I became part of that deal team because I was in my region at the time. So and you're the guy with experience now. Right, yeah. right. So so yeah. the development team knew me. And so so I, I've really had the great fortune to be on the, the development of three of our five joint ventures. And that's been, you know, an incredibly, you know, rewarding experience. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it's uh, kind to describe it as fortunate. And there's always fortune involved, I guess, in, in all of these things to some extent. But you had been it sounds like guiding your career uh, towards those things that are both challenging and have a potential to have long-term meaning, to feel like your efforts are worth it. And, and I would point out that uh, whether followed by a wild success or multiple failures before you get there, there's an opportunity in learning for not only you or me as an individual, but for the organization as well, learning what works, what doesn't. Uh, has there been some of that along the way? or Yeah, I think that part of our role as a joint venture is to serve as, as a testing ground for our parent organizations. It's um, much easier for the joint venture to stand up new solutions, products, services than it is for an organization as big as Aetna or as big as Banner. Right. And, uh, you know, we feel like that is part of our role. And so, so we're constantly encouraging our parent organizations to think of us as a pilot opportunity um, on new initiatives, new programs, thing that they want to test in the marketplace. And we've brought forth a number of different um, initiatives and programs, which have proven to be pretty successful. They've helped launch some companies and uh, we've had some success in that area for sure. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, the the other question that I'm often asked, and so I've asked uh, many this question is, you know, we've watched healthcare prices rise uh, sort of inexorably for a few decades now. And the question becomes, gosh, if we're doing all this work to make things better, what's the biggest barrier to that showing up in, in the bottom line? And one could argue, you know, things would be a lot worse if we hadn't done this, but, but that's not very satisfying. So what do you think the barriers are that keep us from getting to that next level? Well, there are a number of, of macro barriers um, that we face, and, and fixing healthcare is not easy. I mean, Haven found that out and trying to get into this and, and, and make a difference. And Just about every administration has tried to do this. If it were easy, it would have been done, done by, by now. now. I, I'm totally on board with that. It is a tough and a steep climb. I'm really more curious about how you see these challenges and you know what kinds of things you think about 
about to address them. And, you know, the, the whole premise of, of this show is that in healthcare, there really aren't any bad guys. It's not the insurance companies. It's not the delivery system. It's not pharma. It's people that are really working hard to try to do a good job for whatever position that they're in. So what is it that keeps us from being able to, to get over? Yeah, I think some of the um, larger barriers are administrators that, that handle a large portion of our business that are deeply entrenched in what we do. And it's really hard to unseat some of those and yeah. change the way processes work. There's also you know, provider groups that dominate areas um, as dialysis, for example. And to unseat right. that right. is easier said than done. So there are some of the obstacles with it. But, you know, the, the other thing is it's really complex and there's a lot of parts and pieces that, that make up this delivery system and trying to figure out, from my perspective, uh, there's, a, there's a couple of critical things that need to be done and it's continually figuring out ways to engage our members. Mm -hmm. So how do we help them, you know, achieve better health? How do we healthier lifestyles comply with their health requirements? That is one of the holy grails yeah. out there. Yes, it is. And there are a lot of solutions out there that are forthcoming and, and they're having an impact, but we need to continue to work on that. I think making the system easier for our members is also really important. Trying to help them understand where's the best place to get care is, what access points are available to them, understand their bills, understand the information that we share with them. You know, one of the things that, that we've done at Banner Aetna was that, um, you know, we had a situation where a member received a denial letter from us and it was it was um, in written in very legal terms, yeah. and the member walked away thinking that her child's emergency room visit was not covered because it wasn't necessary. And her child had a very bad asthma attack and might have passed if she would not gone to the emergency room. And she had another attack after that, and she was reluctant to bring her daughter to the emergency room. So we have to fix that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. We've got to do a better job. Now, we were able to change our letters, make them you know, more layperson-like and right. so they could understand it and, and, and try to avoid that in the future. But that's an example of, of you know, the, yeah. the, the things yeah. that we have to continually focus in on to make this you know, a better system for our members. Transparency you know, still has a long way to go. The government's yeah. getting involved and that will help to escalate it. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, uh, there's a, a lot uh, in the news of late about, uh, for example, surprise bills and, and uh, how we're going to manage that. And just to, to go back to your point about complexity, well, gosh, now we have state laws that take care of uh, surprise bills, at least the legal aspects of surprise bills. And by the way, for, for listeners, what a surprise bill is, is you receive a bill from a provider. It could be whoever did your x-rays, or it could be the doctor that was in the operating room. It could be a lot of those things, but they're not, quote, in network. And historically, you haven't had a way to absolutely know whether they're in network or not. If they're not in network, then there really aren't any limits on, practically speaking, on what they can charge you. And so folks would walk away from the emergency room thinking, this is, you know, this is my emergency room, this is covered. And there was one doc who's not part of the plan, and that doc would send that surprise bill that was a lot higher than anybody expected. And so there's been legislation passed now at the state level in Arizona but that only covers one segment of the market. And now there's federal legislation that covers the other segment. We're talking about fully insured versus uh, self-insured. And for those of you who are not terribly familiar with insurance language, a fully insured customer, and correct me if I'm wrong, because you definitely are the expert here, but a fully insured customer is one where Aetna's taking the risk, essentially. They pay a premium and Aetna accepts the risk that, you know, we could spend too much money this go-round uh, and Aetna will take that hit. A self-insured, it's their money that they're playing with. For example, State Farm now is, is self-insured. And so that means that it's actually State Farm 
firm's money that is at risk. And what they pay the insurance company to do is to handle all the complexity of processing claims and figuring out, you know, what what is okay, what's not okay, et cetera. Is that kind of an accurate description Absolutely. of this? Absolutely. So we've got two different sets of legislation, and it just increases the complexity one more time. Uh, and that's the kind of stuff that I remember when I was uh, on the delivery side, asking somebody to pull together all of the metrics that we were supposed to perform to for all of the insurance plans that, of course, we accepted because, you know, we want to get paid, right? And there were 36 different sets of metrics that we were asking our docs to perform to, and that it was an impossible task because many of them, they didn't even know that those were expectations. And that level of complexity is just hard to cut through. And so that's what you're talking about. And that's on every level, it seems. Yeah. And that that's a great example, Robert, because I remember that uh, when we first were talking to Banner about the joint venture and they talked about all the quality metrics. And, and I, I think it's important for those incentives to be impactful, that it's a much smaller number and it's consistent across pairs as much as possible. And I know we all want to do things that are unique and we think are more important than the next guy, but in the long run, if we can consolidate them, make them simplified, really hit on the critical aspects and be consistent, then you can really change practice patterns. And that's yeah, a that's yeah. a key piece of it. And, and then it's about information sharing, giving the information back, reporting, giving reports back and telling them how they're doing against their peers and, and doing that. And if we do that really well, we have an opportunity because yeah. I think incentives do work. Yes, if, yes. If they're aligned correctly and they're creating the, the, the right kind of outcomes, they, they can work. But we have to be consistent across carriers and we have to do a good job on reporting on the back end and sharing information so they have a full view of our members. Do you think transparency, the, the rules about hospitals, you know, exposing to the world how they charge and, and what their deals are with everybody and, and now? the insurance side, I think, is, is going to be held to the same accountability in 2022. Is that right? Do you think that's going to help with that? Or is that going to cause some chaos before it actually <laughs> before it actually helps? I, I don't think it's going to be a perfect system out of the gate, <laughs> but I think it will evolve to a point where it can be beneficial. Yeah, and, and I yeah. think ultimately it is, it is a good thing for consumers out there. So I think it will get there, but I think out of the gate, it'll, it'll certainly create some confusion for sure. Well, Tom, we've been going for a while now. And since I have a one-to-one with you tomorrow, I don't want to exhaust you. I want you to be well-rested and <laughs> a good mood. Is there some uh, message that, you know, is is near and dear to your heart that you want to get out there that you want people to understand that? that uh, I, I really love my job yeah. because there's hope. And I can there's tell. Hope. I mean, that is obvious. It, one of my favorite things to do is watch Tom Grote when he's presenting to a customer and he's excited. I mean, it just comes through in spades. It's obvious that you love what you do. Because it, it's it's this opportunity to make a difference. And, yeah. uh, and you know, we, we had a, a successful ACO with Banner, but it wasn't doing enough to fix the healthcare system or really make a difference. And and um, so we've got a, a tremendous partner over at Banner with Chuck Lane and and Chuck and I have both been in this business for well over 30 years. And we talked from the beginning is that this is, you know, a real opportunity to leave a legacy to, yeah. to, to make the There's healthcare, that word. Yeah. yes, to make the healthcare system work better than we found it. And uh, so we, we are continually driven by that. And I know our, our whole management team is. And, uh, and it's not easy work day in and day out because you run into obstacles all the time. But but that that vision, that hope to make a difference, you know, is something that, that drives us every day and makes it fun to get up and go to work in the morning. Well, it has been a real pleasure uh, learning more about you. And, and I think that's a great place uh, to stop. I believe that we will want to do this again at some point as uh, as the system evolves and as we learn more, maybe maybe drill down a little bit deeper on uh, particular aspects of, of, of healthcare. I think there's a lot that the general public just doesn't understand about sure. how it works. And, and I think that would be a fun thing for us to explore at some point in the future. Absolutely, it makes a lot of sense All right. to do it. Well, I'm gonna wrap it up there and uh, thanks everybody for listening. And uh, Tom Grote, thank you for coming by. My pleasure. 
You've been listening to The Groves Connection, your connection to the inside story on healthcare, featuring in-depth interviews with those who know. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, give us a five-star review to keep the connection going and hit the subscribe button to be sure you never miss a beat. The Groves Connection is produced by Dr. Robert Groves. Original music, editing, and creative direction provided by Alden Groves. Production support, content guidance, courtesy of Janae Sharp and Elizabeth Barrett. Thank you for listening. The professional ideas and opinions expressed in this podcast are mine and do not reflect those of any current or past employers. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us next time on The Groves Connection.